Hello. You can turn it down a bit if you want. Um, as well as um, speaking next week, Catherine is also writing all the small group questions based on, on our sermons. And uh, if anyone's used them, you know that how thorough and, and really scholarly those questions are. Um, so it's not just that she's preaching next week. She actually does um, do a bit of a conduit to small groups as well. Um, so Revelation chapter 5. Whenever I was a primary school teacher, I used to really enjoy doing history lessons um, because I kind of, I, I like history. And uh, one of the things that we would often do with the children to get an idea of, of history and where it is, we'd do a timeline, usually with a like, probably big roll of wallpaper or something or chalking it out on the playground. And we'd have, you know, uh, Stone Age and, and the Greeks and the Romans. And, and so they can gauge where we fit in history. And what's really important is, this is, a, this is a picture of, a very complex picture, of the history of the world up to, from 3000 BC, recorded history up to 2000. And the thing is that this pattern of history that is before us, we can look at it and we know about these things. We know about the Roman Empire. We know about things that we are reading about there, maybe to some lesser or greater extent. But what we need to grasp about Revelation and about God, is that he is outside of this thing called time. He is in eternity. So he can look at this time map in front of us. And he not only can see everything, but he is present in every single moment. From the beginning of creation to the end of time. Not just until 2017 at this present instant, but right on until the end of history. God can see it in a snapshot. If we have a satellite and we can go out of the earth, we can look at the earth and zoom in and see things at an instant. God can see things everywhere at the same time, at every moment in history. Now, a few people have been saying about some of the chapters in Revelation so far, and what they know about Revelation is that it's a bit freaky, a bit uncomfortable, I'm not entirely sure about it. And my wholehearted response to that is good. Because if we feel we've got a handle on this, then our God is too small. This book is meant to make us feel uncomfortable because our God is bigger than we can take in. He can take in the entirety of human history in a blink of an eye. In the same way as whenever you're reading a book, uh, I, I'm not a fast reader. I can read maybe one or two words at a, at a time, maybe a sentence. Lisa Holmes is a freak. I think she can read like a page at a time. <laughs> Finish that one. <laughs> Finish that one. It's really quite scary. Some people can take in a whole line, two lines, and understand it. God can see every page, every word of every page, of every chapter, of every book of history instantaneously. If that doesn't blow your mind, you really do need to get your mind blown. That's just... A preamble because it's important to understand where this is happening. This throne room of God is not just a throne room. It's like control center of HQ. It's like control center of HQ. A bit like, do you know um, Dad's Army? And the beginning of it, who do you think you... They'll love it. And it's got all the little armies on the map. This is the control center of eternity. Where history spans out before God. And he can see the movements that have happened. The movements that are going to happen. The movements that are happening right now. 
He has things on the, on the map of things that are going to happen according to his will and the things that are happening against his will. He can see the entire thing. This is the control room of HQ. And Lisa led us in, in that last week to the praise and worship of our creator and how wondrous he is. But then chapter 5. Chapters are a bit annoying in the Bible because we lose a drift. There were no chapters originally. This is one continuous scene. And John sees that the person on the throne is holding a scroll. A scroll with seven seals. This, uh, a seal would normally just be used to kind of make sure that a document wasn't tampered with. It would only be opened by either the sender or the recipient. This has got seven seals. This is saying this is well and truly closed and locked up. No one's getting to this. Now, what is this scroll? And I'm hopefully not going to stand on Catherine's toes next week too much. But there's lots of different theories about what could this represent. Some suggest it could be human history. Beginning, um, present, and the future as well. The entirety of human history. Some think it may be at the covenants, both new and old and the other covenants. The law, perhaps. The law of sin and death. Perhaps it's the deeds to humanity, to the ownership of humanity, which was kind of sold in disobedience to the evil one, but has been bought back, the deeds to humanity. Maybe it's the end of day's plan of action, which certainly has some merit if we, if we look at the echoes in Old Testament prophecy. And, and here's a little rant to myself, to everyone else. If you don't understand Revelation well enough, we don't know our Bibles well enough. Because there's so much prior to Revelation that is soaked in Scripture that it actually helps us understand it a bit more. So Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, talks about a scroll that is sealed up, the scroll that has the end times events, sealed up and closed until the end of days. Read that in Daniel chapter 12. And then Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, or Ezekiel 3, it talks about <clears throat> a scroll that God tells Ezekiel to eat. And it tastes like honey, but what is, is this? Is this? Is this? It's Israel. And it's a word of warning, of prophecy, of you follow this path, these things will happen. And the amazing thing is, God doesn't instantaneously punish, He gives a lot of time to repent and say we're sorry and not face punishment, but we still continue on. It's a trait of humanity. So that's what the scrolls could be. So there's lots of different understandings. And Catherine's going to be exploring them a little bit next week. And those seven seals that we're going to open up next week um, through reading the scriptures, they include things like war and conquest, strife and greed, scarcity, inequality, persecution, natural catastrophe, death and hell. One word to Catherine. Good luck. Actually, without stealing her thunder, all those seals... That when they're broken and they release all these horrible things, it's eternity's perspective on the disobedience of humanity. These are all the things that are consequences of the fall. With every seal that is opened. These are humanity's choices on the macro, the national and the international scale. And the micro, the personal and the interpersonal scale. All those things that are listed. Strife and conquest. Domination, scarcity, and greed. That's not prophetic about what will happen, but what always has happened, what is happening, and what will continue to happen. It's a poetic and pictographic reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. Because humanity repeats its mistakes. Because that's what we do. 
And Daniel 12 and 4 says, The scroll is sealed up until the end times. And I need to tell you, if you're not aware of it, we are in the end times. Now, I promise you, I'm not going to put on a sandwich board and walk around skipped and saying, the end is nigh. But we should know that it is. For two reasons. First of all, since the, since the fall in Eden, we have been hurtling towards a cataclysm of the end of time. It's like the moment you're born, you're on a path of ultimately end in death. That's a bit pessimistic, I realize, but it's also very realistic, isn't it? But we are also in the end times because we are in the end times waiting for Jesus' return from when he ascended into heaven. Since Jesus rose from the dead and went into heaven, we have been waiting for the end times. That's why it's so full of end time theology in the first few years after Jesus' resurrection. They're expecting it any minute. And we lost that because we got comfortable, but Jesus is coming back and he's coming soon. That's the message. He is coming back. We are in the end times. And God holds this scroll in his right powerful hand. And the question is asked of creation, both past, present, and future, heaven and earth and under the earth. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals open? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can break those seals? Who can complete the deal? Who can bring justice? Who can sort out this mess? Who can bring about the end? Now, the end isn't just about a sense of completion and done and dusted and getting everything kind of punishment and everything. It's about, let's bring things to the right conclusion. And so John looks around and there is a deathly silence when he realizes there is no one that can do this. You see, the problems that we face today in this world, you just need to go on the news stations, don't you? The problems we face are too big, they're too hard, they're too complex, certainly to try and answer them with a 20-word soundbite from a politician's mouth. I'm not against politics. It's a God-given government. We need to be praying for them and challenging them in, in the prophetic name of Jesus. But let me, let me tell you, no soundbite is going to solve a problem. No massive budget change is going to solve a problem because our problems are worldwide, they're hard, and they're complex. And any 20-word statement that does not have the word Jesus Christ in it, I don't believe. It may help, but it will not solve. It's important to realize that our problems are too big for us because if we don't realize it, then we, we become self-reliant. We become self-sufficient, self-helping, and self-rescuing. And it's been the same throughout history. It's nothing new under the sun. Um, a warning uh, for those of you who may be of a nervous disposition, there is a 1980s hairstyle coming up. <laughs> I do apologize. Bonnie Tyler holding out for a hero. We need a hero. We need a hero. It's a common motif throughout Great literature and legend, myth and movie. The need for a hero who's worthy. Arthur pulling out Excalibur. The peasant boy who becomes the secret king. Even Cinderella and her diamond shoe. We need a hero. This one was brought home to me a few years ago when we were at a conference called Mainstream. And I was walking down a corridor in the building um, with a friend called, um, I'll tell you her name. Uh, <laughs> some people know her. Um, she was walking down, and she just grabbed my arm and said, Phil, I'm feeling a little bit lightheaded. I went, oh, okay. 
And before I went, oh, okay, whoosh, on the floor, there she was. And I went, oh, dear. Um, lots of people walking by, and I got down, and I looked like a concerned friend, not knowing exactly what to do at all, holding the head, because I think that's what you do. And then all of a sudden, someone came out, leant down, and said the immortal words, it's okay, I'm a doctor. <laughs> now, put your hand up for your doctor, please. Come on, we've got many departments here. Have a bit of conviction. Okay, can I ask you? I know you do lots of things about anatomy and blood and diseases, but is there, is there one week, one lesson where they say, come into this room. This is how you deliver the line. It's okay. <laughs> I'm a doctor. Because this guy was slick. He just went in. And you knew, you just knew he'd been waiting to say that his whole career. He was going home saying, I've done it. I've, I've cured all these diseases, but that doesn't matter. I've said the line. But it was the response of everyone else. Everyone else said, oh, oh. he's a doctor. And he sorted it out. It was brilliant. We need a hero. And as the crowd parted for this doctor who came in and knelt in and sorted things out, an elder prophetically turns to the weeping and weeping and desperate John, and he says, here he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Here he is. Now, I love lions. They're my favorite animal. I've um, had a couple of, of run-ins with them. It makes me sound a bit like Bear Grylls. Um, <laughs> I'm not on the video, don't worry. Oh, that is me, the piece of meat that's been dragged in front of it. But listen. We, I, we went to South Africa kind of for an extended honeymoon uh, many years ago, and um, I wanted desperately to see a male lion. We saw lots of lovely female lions, brilliant, hunting and pack. It was great, but I wanted to see the big boy, you know, the big bouffant hair, 1980s hairstyle, that one. I wanted to see him. And we were in a, a park called Shlushlui Umfalosi, and uh, we were in the, the truck, and all of a sudden the truck pulled up, nothing around, just, just foliage, just pulled up. We said, what's wrong? And he said, shh. And we heard this noise. And it's not like the MGM lion. It goes, Rrr. It was a resonant rumble that stirred your very inmost being. So deep. So moving. So terrifying. And he said, that lion is probably five kilometers away. And then, um, during my sabbatical, I do, I do love Africa. I've got a, a real passion for it. We went to um, my sabbatical with Phil Nixon and Jacob and Ruben, went to Tanzania. And the guy took us on a, a, a safari in the Serengeti. And he took us um, along this dried up riverbed and then turned a corner and there was the big boy. And what was the big boy doing? Sleeping. <laughs> I did feel like getting out and tapping him in the shoulder and say, please, can you at least smile? But I thought it was a bit dangerous. Um, he was sleeping because he can, because there's no one touching him. Leopards, cheetah, hyena, they all scoff their food quickly or they hide it because they're worried that the big boys come along and go, right, I'll have that. Because the lion is the king. He's been renowned for that in all heraldry for many, many years. Here, 
is the king. And if we read in Genesis 49, you can turn to that if you want. It's brilliant. It's a prophecy right in Genesis from Jacob to his sons. And he prophesies to them. Let me just find it because I think it's amazing. This prophecy at the very, very beginning, he, he blesses his sons. He says to his son Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations will be his. That sounds pretty familiar language. He'll tether his donkey to a vine, colt to a choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Duh, who's that about then? Jesus, the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah. And Isaiah and Ezekiel, and here we hear that he is of the Davidic line. He is king. Here is the king. And it would be a crime against all sermon illustrations if I did not mention Aslan. Wouldn't it? If you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about lions, if you don't mention Aslan, you get struck off, I think. Aslan, what did they say about that? Owen and I are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, slowly, but I'm really soaking them up. And okay, in my tender years of 40, yeah, I still get a thrill when I know that Aslan's going to appear. When I know that Lucy or Jill are going to encounter the great beast. He's not a tame creature. And then the stuff that we know so well Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Duh. (laughs) But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our king Jesus is wild. Not in the maniacal sort of way. He is wild. He is not domesticated. He is not tamed. He is not controllable, much as we might like him to be. He's not a tame Jesus. We do not have a tame God much as we pretend that we do. And then John, being told the lion is here, he turns around and he sees a lamb. A lamb. The complete opposite of a lion. Innocent and pure, meek and weak, approachable, vulnerable. I want to go and give it a cuddle. Sweet, harmless, Controllable. Instead of the beast that would devour us is the feast that we would devour. The lamb. That's not just a cute little lamb. It's a lamb that was slain. Part of me so wanted to put an image of that up. I just wanted to keep people's sensibilities. But a lamb covered in blood. Let's get our Sunday school lion picture book Bible out. And think, actually, this is not what happened. Jesus was the slain, blood-covered lamb. A number of scholars over the years have not particularly liked Revelation. I think they just were scared to tackle it. (laughs) Luther was one of them. Luther didn't like it because he said, there's no cross in Revelation. I'm sorry, Luther, respect you lots, but you're wrong. Here is the cross. And it's throughout the entirety of Revelation Here is the cross in plain sight. And again, it's got echoes from 
the Old Testament, from the history, particularly of the Passover in Exodus 12. And that, that remembrance act, that amazing act of deliverance, which the Jewish nation have continued to remember by commandment every single year. It's not just a remembrance, it's a prophetic act of a spiritual reality. From eternity to eternity, the lamb that was slain for the deliverance of the people. You see, the cross towers over creation. The, the cross towers over human history. And if we have a historical event where Jesus was nailed to a cross at maybe 30 AD. The base of the cross is rooted there, but the rest of the cross is in eternity. And it spans from age to age. In Revelation 13, verse 8, without ruining it, it says, The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Jesus' death is efficient and effective over all creation from before and after that one event. The way that we can access it now, post the event, is the way that people could have a relationship with God because of Jesus from the very, very start. Notice the lamb had been slain. Had been slain. Past tense. What was the lion doing? It was standing on the throne. Last time I looked, things that are killed stay lying down. The lamb was standing because it went beyond death. He went beyond death. The lion is the sacrificial lamb. I remember the, uh, the picture in um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the movie where you see Aslan in all his glory walking towards the stone table and all the minions of evil are crowding around him and start shaving his head and his hair off. He may be a lamb, but he's still got seven horns and seven eyes. I've seen a picture of it that these are not kind of, you know, Little kind of bubbly eyes sticking out in a kind of weird way, but it's like jewels in a haloed crown around this lamb. Symbol of its all powerfulness and its all knowledge. So how do we see Jesus? Do we see Jesus as the pitiful, cuddly lamb who we can control? Or do we see him as the reigning, powerful, wild lion? Because the thing is, he is both lion and lamb. Um, this painting hangs in, in our, our hallway. It was a gift from Marianne Isle Smith a couple of years ago. Picturing the lamb and the lion and the glory of God. He is the lamb. He is the lion. He is both. The wonder that he is the lion chose to be the lamb. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested and there's crowds of guards, Matthew recounts that uh, people kind of, his disciples take arms to defend him. And Jesus says, don't. Don't you realize? I could call out to my Father and have legions of angels. But I don't. In Schindler's List, there's a paraphrase where Schindler's talking, Oscar Schindler's talking to Goat, the... Uh, the SS officer in charge of the concentration camp. And he says this, power is when you can do anything to anybody and you don't. This is what makes Jesus the worthy one. So the lion lamb 
is worthy to take the scroll. And he takes the scroll. It's time to fix things. And the response is amazing. And we'll start to kind of wrap things up as we start to look at these three songs that are sung. In addition to the two songs in chapter 4, which were the creation praising the creator. Now we're starting to look at the redeemer. A new song was sung by the people of Israel in the Psalms. You notice that when God did something, an act of God it sparked a new song, something for his people. And the four living creatures who are the beasts, the major beasts in creation, they're singing the song. The 24 elders are singing the song. The 24 elders made up of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, both are singing this new song. They're holding harps of worship of the people of God. They hold the bowls of the incense of the prayers of the people. It's connected to our temporal world. And they're singing to the Lamb, you are worthy. Worthy. We do worship. Guys, great worship leading today. Thank you for that. Worship comes from an old English word called weirdskip. Weirdskip means worth-ship. We sing of the worth, worthiness of God. How can we ever, if we take it seriously, think that worship's anything to do with us? It is the worship of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. You were slain and with your blood you bought, you redeemed, you ransomed humanity for God. Not just the one or two or the special people who know their Bibles well. Every nation, I just chose this really cheesy picture because the idea that God loves us all is so cheesy and so nice and so lovely. Here is the reality of it. He has bought all people. And this is the ridiculousness of grace. Male, female, young, old, Protestant, Catholic, the spectrum of skin colors, rich, poor, gay, and straight, Republican, Democrat, Hillary, or Donald. All these people oppressed and oppressor, criminals and kings, prisoners and priests, um, Muslim extremists, Buddhist brotherhoods, and apathetic agnostics. Single, married, introvert, extrovert, able-bodied, and those with special needs. Sinners, saints, prostitutes, pushers, pedophiles, and pimps. All people have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All people. He has paid the price, the ransom, that means that we can be free. In order to do what? To have a nice time, nor is that we're saved to something. We're saved to be a kingdom, a people who live by the rules of their king. In the here and now, it's not just in eternity. In the here and now, we live by the rules of the king. And we're also called to be priests who serve our God. Priests, pontifex, bridges between the people and God. We are to be the kingdom example to people around, to the glory of God. That's why we've been saved. That's why we've been ransomed. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's meat on your plate while you wait. <laughs> Works if you're Northern Irish. <laughs> and then the second movement of the eternity oratorio happens. And the angel chorus comes in. The angel chorus comes in. Um, just the other week, I was at the Young Voices concert, which is where they get lots of primary school choirs together. And in the MEN arena in Manchester, there were 8,599 children singing in this mass choir. And it was beautiful. It was great. Owen was part of it. We loved it. We zoomed in. We took a picture. It was great. 
That was loud. I've been at Croke Park when there were 80,000 Irish fans screaming their heads off. And I went away with a sore throat and the noise was deafening. But a whisper compared to millions and millions of powerful angels singing at the tops of their voices. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. He is worthy to receive the things that he can use for the glory of God, not for himself. Notice these are the things that humanly Jesus was tempted by in the desert and all the way through to the cross. He was tempted to go the way of power. He was tempted to show off his wealth and his glory. He was tempted to show off his wisdom and his power and to seek praise from men there and then. And these are the things that trip up humanity in our pursuit of them. And in our pursuit of these things, they our pursuit of power and glory and wealth and wisdom and honor and praise, our pursuit of those things lead to the consequences of the seven seals. Conquest, strife, war, greed, injustice, persecution, domination, ecological disaster, death, judgment, and hell. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he has not succumbed to the temptations and the tactics behind the seals. He has experienced them all. He has tempted them all. They've had them all thrown at him. And he has overcome them. He was tempted by demon and disciple to follow the way of power. But he chose the other way. And therefore he is immune to the opening of the seals. Whereas if any of us or any others did, we would fall prey to them. And so the angels sing this song. But they can't experience it. They've not been saved. We have. And here is the final movement. All creation, cosmos and creature, visible and invisible, past, present, future, kings, queens, empires and people, despots and desperates, bacteria, beast, planet and plant, all sing together these words. And are the words that are echoed in Philippians chapter 2. They're sung to the creator and they're sung to the redeemer, sustainer. Praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever who being very nature God, he didn't think that was something to hold on to for himself. He made himself a lamb. And he was obedient to death on a cross. And because of that, like Solomon, who given a choice of wisdom or wealth, chose wisdom for God's people, and God said, have the wealth as well. God says, I choose obedience. And God says, you have satisfied me. Wealth and power, dominion and strength be yours. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. This is a fast forward to the ultimate end of the the end of Revelation, where every single knee will bow and say, Jesus is Lord. Because there's no meaning of time in Revelation. We skip a bite. And then verse 14. The four creatures... Say, Amen. One of the most overused and misunderstood words. We use it as a full stop, don't we? Finish my prayer, full stop. Amen. Or as a signal when you're at a prayer meeting and everyone stopped praying 15 minutes ago and you suspect someone's snoring in tongues over there. (laughs) And so the leader goes, Amen, which basically means, right, we've stopped. Yeah? Yeah? Eugene Peterson grasps this amen. It's not the amen. He grasps it 
The four living creatures in response to hearing, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Creator. Their response is, yes! Yes! Go on! Are you going to do that at the end of a prayer? (laughs) I will be watching. It means we agree, yes, absolutely, 100%, may it be so, because it always has been and is now. We agree, yes! Not, ah, man, we're finished now. But it goes on and on and on and on. And this is so important, because as we know, in the next few chapters, they're going to be, if you've read ahead, Lisa and I did the stupid thing of reading ahead, and we went, oh my goodness, why did we do this book? This scene where every entity sings the praise and bows the knee to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because for the first hearers, the reality of hearing this book was in the reality of continued persecution, victimization, and minority. For us, there are and will be wars and rumors of wars. Continuing. And the next chapters of Revelation contain some fairly dark bits, some confusing bits, some bits of human suffering. And there are tough times mixed in with some wondrous images. It's a little bit like life, isn't it? And remember this, please. This is our staging point into some tough waters of how Jesus sorts things out. Through the next 17 chapters, one thing that's not mentioned all the time but needs recalling to this part of the story As with John, we're going to see some devastating effects of sin and disobedience. We're going to see the seeming victory of evil. We need to look back to this point and look beyond the crystal sea and realize this. And it's a hymn that my grandmother, Ruby Bickerstaff, used to write the words to me. God is still on the throne. Notice in the next 17 chapters, no matter what happens, God's throne is never at stake. It is never under threat. He is always on the throne. He will not forget you, for God is still on the throne. All these things have happened in the past, are happening, will happening, will happen, and indeed, because of the fall, they must happen. But the history of humanity, the past, our present, and the future, is safely in the pierced hands of the one who is and will overcome. The one who is worthy. What is the name of this book? No. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's called. We just like shorten things. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is worthy to sort out this mess. And so, along with those four creatures, shall we say and mean it, worthy and honor and glory and power forever and ever, yes! Amen? Amen. Amen. I think we should worship God.